So just to give a little bit more context, in the session before, we started to explore this connection to Sangha, the jewel of community. So in this next session, I'd like to focus a bit more on the jewel of the Buddha himself. And just beginning by acknowledging that for many people, including me early on in my practice, I didn't have much of a sense of connection to the Buddha. And this is partly, I think, because he's often presented as a very idealized figure, like a shiny gold statue or a white, pristine marble sculpture. And then some of the legends and the myths about him are very idealized. So we can forget that he was an actual living human being. So I thought to take just a few minutes now to reflect on just one aspect of the Buddha's life story. This is the legend of the four heavenly messengers. And just to see if we can find some threads of commonality between his life story and ours. So it's possible not everyone here knows what this term heavenly messengers refers to. So just a little bit of context for people who might not be so familiar with these teachings. This uh, theme of the four heavenly messengers comes from a legend about the Buddha's life before his enlightenment. So it's said that as a young man, he was living a very sheltered and privileged life having been born a prince in northern India about 2,600 years ago. And at that time, he was known as Prince Siddhartha Gautama. And according to the story, his father, who was some kind of king, tried to protect his son from the harsh realities of life with the intention that he would eventually inherit the throne and keep the power in the family, I guess, and I think it's natural for parents to want to protect their children from life's challenges. But in this case, the king took that instinct a little bit too far. And he enabled his son to live a life of extreme luxury and hedonism. So the king provided his son with three different palaces to live in at the different seasons of the year. And he supplied him with all kinds of entertainments and sense pleasures. But in spite of all that effort, he wasn't able to stop the young prince from getting more and more dissatisfied with this life of luxury, of total self-indulgence. So the prince ended up sneaking out of the palace with his charioteer and going to the, a neighboring town just to check things out. And in a sequence of visits, he saw first a very sick person, then a very aged person, then a dying person, actually a corpse, and then finally a spiritual seeker, a contemplative. And in those first three visits, the Buddha-to-be was supposedly, had never seen those kind of sights before and was profoundly shocked had a kind of existential crisis at realizing that he also was subject to aging, illness, dying. And then on the fourth visit, he saw the wandering ascetic, the spiritual seeker, and he was struck by the different energy of that particular being. 
a kind of serenity and a different sort of presence. And connecting with that person was what inspired him to leave the palace and become a spiritual seeker himself. And then after seven years of pretty hardcore dedication to spiritual practice, eventually his quest was successful and he attained Nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. And so from then on he was known as the Buddha, the awakened one. And now perhaps some of you are thinking, well, okay, that's, that's a nice story, but what does it really have to do with any of us here today? And while it's true that this is a myth, it's a legend, it is based on some actual discourses from the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about the shock he felt at realizing his own human vulnerability to aging, to sickness and death and how that inspired him to search for a way out. And whether or not we live in a palace, most of us, I think, have developed strategies to avoid facing into those uncomfortable truths, the truth that every one of us here is subject to aging, to illness, to death. And for some of us, those truths are very close, very immediate. And even if they don't feel so immediate for us right now, in many ways I think this global pandemic situation has the potential to be a collective wake-up call. In most societies around the world, I think this pandemic has revealed the fault lines in our societies and in our community structures, as well as in our individual and family lives. And it's shown us that life is not actually as stable and safe and secure as we would like to believe. So even if right now in this moment we ourselves are okay, I think it's true to say that compared to life before COVID, all of us are more aware now of our individual and collective vulnerability, our fragility, insecurity, mortality. So all of those are aspects of the first noble truth in the Buddha's teachings, that there is unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. And for most people, that truth is pretty unpalatable, unpleasant. So you might check just now how you feel hearing about this. If you're anything like me, there can be a kind of instinctive recoil, reactions of just pulling away, aversion, denial. And the Buddha recognized these as the core afflictive energies that keep us caught in stress, distress, suffering, dukkha. And I've certainly seen that in myself. Sometimes my own reaction to the truth of impermanence, the truth of unreliability, vulnerability, can be quite subtle at times. Other times, it's very obvious and it shows up as a kind of willful ignorance or denial. It's like, la 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 la, yep, not going there, thank you very much. We don't want to know. And that pushing away, instinctive, can be very powerful. And although it might work as a short-term strategy for dealing with distress, in the long run, 
it keeps us at the mercy of those inevitable ups and downs. And I've seen in myself and observed in other people too that when there's some kind of crisis, there is a tendency unconsciously to default into familiar reactions and habit patterns. So to name just a few, avoidance, denial, anger, despair, blame, hopelessness, victimhood, and so on. And yet, those same crises also have the potential to initiate profound transformation. Whether that crisis is COVID-19, or the environmental crisis, or social injustice, and or our own individual and family challenges, any crisis can offer us powerful opportunities to see where and how those default reactions get activated and how to change them, transform them into their opposites to skillful responses of calm, of kindness, clarity, compassion, and wisdom. And with those in place, we not only reduce our own suffering in the midst of challenge, we are also in a better position to be able to help others. So symbolically then these four heavenly messengers represent the truth that every one of us here is subject to aging, sickness and death. And no matter our current life circumstances, we can't escape that universal truth. And at the same time, we have the potential to wake up from delusion and find freedom. So if we explore this story on the metaphorical level, we might start to recognize some universal truths in there. So starting at the beginning with Prince Siddhartha living in his palace. As far as I know, nobody here lives in an actual literal palace, right? No. (laughs) But if we take that as a metaphor for our delusion, we can start to contemplate where and how, in the context of our own lives, We've tried to build a palace of delusion to protect us from life's harsh realities. So, for example, for some people, that metaphorical palace is built on acquiring money and material wealth. The belief that if we can just achieve enough financial success and security, then we'll be safe. For other people, the palace is built on acquiring social recognition, status, fame, the belief that if we can work hard enough, maybe get a name for ourselves, become someone special in our families or communities or workplaces, then we'll be safe. For other people, the palace of delusion might be built on physical fitness and health, the belief that if we just eat well and exercise enough and take perfect care of our bodies, then we'll be okay. For others, it might be built on intimate relationships, having a partner, the belief that if we can just find our soulmate, then we'll be safe. And that one was certainly true for me as a young woman before I got involved in Dharma. And I still remember that complete shock of being dumped by my first love and that sense of, this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be happy ever after, just like in the movies. What went wrong? So delusion. And now in theory, that experience back then of being dumped, 
It could potentially have been a heavenly messenger for me. The shock of it could have been a wake-up call that helped me to develop some emotional maturity, maybe some wisdom and compassion. But it didn't, not at that time. So again, I think most of us can probably recognize times of challenge in our own lives that we can think of as wake-up calls, but not every shocking or painful event leads to personal growth or transformation. If it did, the world would be full of Buddhas, right? So there's something missing there. And if we look at that in relation to the heavenly messengers, I think what's often missing is the fourth one, the contemplative. So most of us need someone, an external support, at least at first, to help us access our inner wisdom. And this is where sangha or community comes in. So in the legend, Prince Siddhartha was inspired by the serene presence of the contemplative. And although it's not described in the legend, I'm pretty (coughs) sure that he would have done more than just look at that spiritual seeker. (coughs) Bless you. I'm pretty sure he would have interacted with him, talked to him, had some kind of engagement. And that was what inspired him. He saw, heard, recognized some kind of truth that had been missing from his life so far. And that truth inspired him to reevaluate the way he'd previously been living and to radically change the direction of his life. Now again, in the context of our own lives, most of us here have probably not literally abandoned our families and our homes and our jobs and so on to live a life completely devoted to waking up. Nevertheless, I think all of us have heard some kind of transformative truth that woke us up enough to reconsider how we've been living and inspired us to start making changes. So the spiritual seeker is a way out of this dilemma. And initially that understanding comes from outside, from someone else. But that spark of truth can catalyze transformative change within us. And I think if we look carefully, we could say every one of us here has experienced some kind of wake-up call and has to some extent connected with a truth that helps us transcend the suffering of delusion and ignorance, even if just for short moments at a time. So again, if you think back of your own life, of your own life, perhaps there was a meeting with someone who embodied a different way of being in the world. Perhaps it was a monastic, maybe a Dharma teacher, or someone who became a spiritual friend. For others, it might have been hearing a word or a phrase in a Dharma talk, or having a conversation with a good friend that suddenly revealed something to you that you hadn't seen before. And as a result of that spark of truth, something started to change inside you and you began to relate differently to yourself, your life, the world. So we can think of these four heavenly messengers as catalyzing change in Prince Siddhartha's life so that eventually he became the Buddha, the awakened one. And as I mentioned in the beginning, those sparks of truth have been passed from person to person 
over the centuries until mysteriously here we all are. Every one of us has received some spark of transformative truth. Otherwise we wouldn't be here today celebrating Vesak. So there's a lot we could explore in all of this. That's probably enough context for now. So thank you for your attention.